This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. This episode is brought to you by Praxis, discoverpraxis.com. Derek McGill, who was interviewed on an episode from season one, dropped out of the University of Michigan. He went from the dean's list to leaving school. Why? Because he was bored. Not because it was too hard for him or he wasn't good enough for an elite school. It just wasn't good enough for him. It wasn't bringing him what he wanted. It wasn't worth it. The prestige and the pleasure of others that he was there, not a good enough reward considering the life that he wanted to build. He quit. He joined Praxis. He's a digital marketing guru, all self-taught. After being in the program, we liked his work so much, we hired him on as our marketing director. Derek is one of many examples of young people today who are realizing the world is changing. It's changing fast. There's more opportunity than ever to be your own signal, to be your own credential, to create things and demonstrate your value creation potential through what you've done in tangible ways. Build a website, build an online presence, get work experience. Don't worry. It sounds overwhelming, but you get all of that in the year-long Praxis program. It's not easy, but no great adventure is. Discoverpraxis.com slash apply. You can join Derek and many others in building the education revolution, starting with your own life. Who are some of the young people that attend fee seminars, the Foundation for Economic Education? Looking at some of the alumni there are a lot of people that you probably think, hey, that sounds cool. I want to do that. Stephen McCaskill is a successful entrepreneur in Denver, Colorado. Lana Link is the director of communications and marketing for the Moving Pictures Institute, which is a phenomenal organization aimed at getting great videos, great short films, feature films produced and supporting uh, the producers of those films who care about the ideas of individual liberty, human flourishing and freedom. Uh, speaking of the arts and entertainment industry, Robert Anthony Peters, who is an actor. Bob Ewing, who is a director of media relations at the Mercatus Center, a think tank in Washington, D.C. There are people from every industry in that you can imagine, every part of the country, who have gone through fee seminars when they were younger. And most of the time, I know personally in some of these cases, I know in the case of Bob Ewing, for example, who, all the, by the way, is a co-author in um, one of my books, Why Haven't You Read This Book? Bob is the author of one of the chapters and really was instrumental in the concept of the book. Phenomenal guy. When he was young, it was a fee seminar. It was the Foundation for Economic Education that got him turned on to the world of ideas, excited about the concept of human liberty, and that has guided him and led to a very successful career. I believe he interned at fee, actually, if I'm remembering correctly. So it's a great history of going to these seminars, being changed, meeting amazing people, being introduced to amazing ideas, and they don't just come and go. It's not just a hit, you know, one-time experience where you take a hit of fun. Um, it stays with you. The network of alumni stay with you. The faculty you meet, they'll stay in touch with you. I'm in touch with participants that I've met, uh, seminar attendees I've met for, from years ago. In fact, one of them works for me now. More on that in another episode. FEE.org slash seminars. Fill out an application. Tell them you heard about it on the Isaac Morehouse podcast.
welcome back to the podcast. This is part two of our four-part series, uh, A Beginner's Guide to Startups. And today, we are going to be talking about investors, what types of investors there are, what do you need to do if you need to seek investment, uh, all of the various elements involved there. And joining me is Michael Gibson, who has been on the podcast before. Um, in episode 27, it was in 2015, if you want to look that episode up. And he talked a lot about his own personal story and bio. But uh, suffice to say, for today's purposes, Michael is a general partner in the 1517 fund, which is a venture capital fund. And he has been around and seen quite a bit from the investor side of the table. And um, that's what we're going to discuss today. So Michael, thanks for joining us. Great. Happy to be here, Isaac. So in episode one, we talked about, or, or in part one of the series, we talked about, you know, once you have an idea and you've got sort of a business plan, you've got a clear understanding of what you need to do to, to bring your product to market, who your customers are, et cetera. And then yep. you get to the point where you realize, uh, and not all, and we'll talk about uh, in, in part three, uh, companies that don't need to raise investment, not not all yep. do, but if you realize you need to raise some money to, to do this, um, what do you do next. So I wanted to ask you first, first I'm going to list and you tell me if this list is, is accurate, sort of the, okay. the categories of investor as I, as I see them. Yeah. Uh, so you've got friends and family, which is usually a really small amounts. So if you need mm. five grand or something to borrow from, you know, aunt Bessie, uh, you've got angels. Um, you've got kind of in, in between angels and venture capital, maybe you have the incubators and accelerators, which are kind of programs that sometimes come with money. Um, and then finally you have venture capital. Um, and that usually is the goal there is to lead yep. to some kind of acquisition or uh, a public offering. Is that, is that roughly the categories? Yeah, that, that feels like a very accurate taxonomy of, of the ecosystem for sure. So what do you, so let's say you've got your idea, your business plan, you need mm. to get going. Where do you start? Mm, great question. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess it depends on the nature of your business and, and what your needs are. Uh, it'll be interesting to, yeah, to, is figuring out whether or not you should be listening to the next podcast or this one <laughs> is an important question. Uh, and so what the difference there is, there are some businesses that are, very successful by any measure, but they're just uh, much smaller. Let's say they they serve a smaller market in a, let's, it could be tied to geography or even a, a nation. Uh, but uh, if you, it, there's a different type of company, like a tech startup that has the ability to scale to a global market or, or just really big markets. And, uh, and so if you, if you've decided you're, you're that kind of company, or have the potential, and that's what you're aiming for, then uh, you're much more likely to want to pursue funding from the ecosystem that you just outlined. So sure. would you say, uh, like, to, in order to, to decide, mm. yes, I need to go get outside investments, mm. um, there, there's got to be a component of a lag between, you've got to build something, whether it's mm. the product itself, uh, a process, yep. whatever, <laughs> And there's going to be a lag between when you build it and when you bring in enough money to cover your costs. But you're confident that if you can cover that lag, um, mm. you'll get to a point where you're profitable one year, two years, three years out. So it's kind of a something that requires, you know, 
significant upfront cost before, like a delay between the cost yeah. and the revenue? Is that kind of... Yeah, so I guess, yeah, where do you start? It depends where you are. Uh, so, I mean, the means of production are so cheap now that uh, two people with laptops in a dorm room can can start a company that maybe doesn't have revenue, but has, uh, let's just say it's a product that tons of people start using. Well, uh, so that so that's going to, on a tech side, yeah. maybe I'm just stupid because I don't code. <laughs> yeah, right. What What is it that makes so many of these tech startups need, or maybe they don't need it, maybe the investors just want to be a part of it, but what do they do with all this money in the early stages because they don't have a lot of physical capital? So what is the money primarily used for if you're a, if you're a, if you don't have a lot of physical things you need to purchase, if you're right. a tech startup? Yeah. The number one cost is labor. Uh, okay. Yeah. So it, it, typically what happens is if it's two people with the, and, and they develop some hot app and, and they're getting tons of downloads, they're going to need to spend money on infrastructure that could be uh, Amazon web services to host them all that kind of stuff. But the number one cost is going to be labor. First to uh, cover the costs of their own living expenses and then also making the first few hires uh, engineers. And, those and salaries those salaries are going to be really high because you're competing with Amazon, Facebook, Google, the big players who offer very safe jobs and, and very cushy salaries. So uh, it's a lot of the money goes towards that. And then beyond that, it, it'll also be some fixed costs or uh, infrastructure spending on office space and equipment. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I want to take it a step back, though, and say, you know, there is this narrative that a lot of the best companies raise money and that's just the standard course of things. Uh, and, and you, you're going to need money to, to launch your business, no matter what kind it is. But it's always important to remember is like Bill Gates is a great story because he Microsoft only raised money once. I wow. Mean, think of how what an aberration that is compared to today's uh, market with all these private unicorns that are raising round after round of financing like Microsoft raised money once. And so there's a reason Bill Gates is the richest man in the world. And it's because he he, he retained ownership uh quite a bit of, of the ownership of microsoft uh because they didn't have to raise money they were they were making uh hand over fist millions of dollars selling uh their product <laughs> so uh you know it's like there's a standard narrative of a tech startup where maybe they start with some money from friends and family and and they're at the prototype stage and then as soon as they get some users or, or some revenue Maybe they can raise some money from angels or they enter an accelerator program like Y Combinator. And then from there, uh, they see even more robust growth. So it justifies uh, raising another round of financing from venture capitalists. Like that's the typical story, but there's no uh, nothing essential about startups or fundraising that suggests that must be the path. And I always think of Microsoft as a great counterexample because huh. uh you know, it, it's pretty astounding. And then and then uh, and then even Apple, for that matter, was was making tons of money before they IPO'd, which is which is very different uh, from a lot of the the companies today. And, and, and that's why they raise money is that. So you see this sometimes referred to as a J curve and, and the curve on a graph would like the X axis would be time and the Y axis would be revenue. And it's a J because it sinks down below zero. You're not making any money. You're spending it. You're burning it in the hopes that in year 
one, two, three, four, five, you know, you come up into the, into the positive. So, um, yeah, that's interesting because I think there is something in the atmosphere right now in the air that it, it can almost, <laughs> it can almost make young people feel like the customer is the next investor and yes, they just yes, start thinking, exactly. Hey, let's, let's see if we can convince somebody <laughs> to give us money to sort of goof yep. around and build this thing. And then if it works there, we can get some more money and you yeah. sort of forgetting like, okay, we do want revenue <laughs> at, <laughs> at yeah, some right. point. Um, well, so, so what would you say in terms of the getting started? Yeah. Uh, let's say, let's say that we've got somebody listening who's got an idea and they've, mm -hmm. and they've taken a, put a little money on their own credit card or borrowed a little from mom or dad or whatever. They've, they've yeah. sort of got friends and family. <laughs> when, when is the point when you sort of consider that angel investor, and let's say you mm. want to meet an angel investor, you want to have yeah. a good pitch for them. How do you even go about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the key on all this, I guess there are two pieces to it. One is relationships are everything. So even before you're at that point where you decide you need to fundraise, uh, it's best for you to start cultivating relationships with people who are investors or who know investors. And that can mean you better uh, start attending conferences or uh, any, kind of, any kind of venue where you might bump into these sorts of people. And, and then the second element of that is, uh, it, it's sad to say in, in the sense that you always have to be hustling, but it's true is you always need to be pitching. Uh, so it's not the case that you're carrying around uh, a slide deck with all you know an outline of the business. But you should always have some sense of what it is that you're building and how you can excite people about it uh, and some story about why, you know, you're involved and you're dedicating your life to this. So so with those two things, elements in hand is like you reach this point where you decide you need to raise money. Then you start sending out the emails to the people, you know, saying, hey, I'd love to pitch you on this idea. Um, now, let's say let's take the example, though, where you don't know anyone. Uh, I think the best route for you at that point is probably one of the accelerator programs. They have open application periods. Anyone can apply. Uh, you don't have to know anyone involved. And so that gives an, it gives an advantage or helps you out if you have no connections. Um, the next thing I would do is, uh, you know, cold emails are really hard. I, I think it's, you're going to have a low hit rate. It's going to be really hard to get anyone's attention. I, I honestly think the best move after that might be uh, really just uh, going back to the conference idea, the, uh, any sort of events where you might bump into someone and you can give them an, a short elevator pitch. I would think about moving to some place where there is capital. Yeah. So that could be either New York or, or San Francisco, but certainly other cities as well. And then, uh, you know, it's it's the fundamental truth, though, is it's all about you got to know people because yeah. it's just so hard to get a meeting unless you know them. And if you just, if you visit a venture capital website or you find an email to a, an angel investor, it's going to be really hard to, to just get their attention. I think it's, it's pretty much the, the policy of any venture capital firm that they won't look at anything unless someone has referred it. Yeah. So when I was working for uh, Peter Thiel, uh, sometimes I'd go to events with him in public where he was speaking 
and afterwards he'd get mobbed. I mean, people would uh, want to talk to him and, and, and they see it as their shot to, Hey, I got a chance to like get two minutes with Peter Thiel. I can pitch him something. And Peter, what he would say to people is, I think what you're doing is great, but here's what you need to do. Become friends with someone that I'm friends with. And if they're willing to vouch for you, then I'll take the meeting. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, I don't think that's unique to him. I think that's, that's pretty much true of a lot of investors. Most people don't, um, aren't helpful enough to tell you directly that that's what you need to do, but, <laughs> but I think it's yeah. true. You know, it's funny. I, I like to use the, um, there's a, there's a verse in the Bible. I don't even remember where it is about, uh, you know, treat everyone with kindness. If a stranger comes because you never know, and you might be entertaining angels. And I like to uh, use yeah. that, uh, huh. you know, whether the investor or any other variety, because yeah. most often you are only a few degrees removed from potential investors that you may not even know. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I had a friend, uh, here in Charleston when I first moved here who I met just at some you know, with some music stuff and whatever. And, mm. and he met somebody at Starbucks because he spilled his coffee and helped the guy clean it up and they got to chatting and then they'd see yep. each other there. And he tells me, Oh, he works at this marketing firm. You guys would like each other. So the three of us went to lunch just to say, Hey, he knew another guy who owned an investment company. <laughs> and I introduced him to somebody I knew that was raising money that was friends with me. And yep. long story short, it was like they introduced him to two other investors and he was able to raise some wow, money. But this, yeah. is, this is all because somebody helps a stranger clean up coffee, right? So like- That's incredible. It, wow. it really is. It's, it's, you're more likely to get somewhere yeah. with someone that knows someone you know in some yeah. way. So- um, Yeah, that's great. And that's why it's important too to have in mind that you're going to raise money down the road or potentially uh, even if you aren't now, because if you're looking for these opportunities, you kind of sense them out a little bit better in unusual circumstances than you would otherwise would. You know, you might. It's kind of like if you think you're lucky, then you tend to have more uh, lucky things come your way. It's like that antenna is up, and you're just yeah. To sit. And you're kind of if you kind of let people in your network know that you're raising money, who knows who they might know. Um, yeah. So tell us, let's talk a little bit more about these accelerators i guess maybe they're not called incubators anymore that used to be used more often yeah i think the an incubator is usually just an office space uh where you're allowed your your company is allowed to work in it uh sort of like co-working and over some extended time period where you're sponsored okay uh, maybe may, maybe there's some mentorship involved too if 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 they have people on staff, I think that's the, the definition of an incubator. And an accelerator uh, is, and most cities now have these, <laughs> Y Combinator is probably the most famous, but it's essentially yep. you apply to get in and you and X number of businesses get accepted to like a class and maybe it lasts three months, maybe it lasts a yep. year, they're different. And you usually get some amount of money, maybe it's $50,000 yep. and your, your goal is to get your, um, startup from mm. basically where it is now at, at raw idea or maybe prototype stage mm. to the point where you can be pitching venture capitalists. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, that's a great description. Uh, yes. Yeah, I think why, why combinator, they set the standards. So, uh, their program is three months and, uh, they have weekly dinners. Uh, the, the, their partners will take meetings with you to help you brainstorm, on any sort of questions you have to build whatever it is you're working on. And then, yeah, it culminates in, in demo day. And, and that idea is, you know, you've built up your product, you've maybe you've got some traction, and now you're ready to raise what's called a seed round. 
uh, and and Y Combinator fills the room on the last two days with uh, a lot of Silicon Valley investors, and you get two minutes to pitch them. I think uh, most of the other accelerators probably follow something along that line, where yeah. it's some sprint to a demo day where you're pitching investors. What what should someone be thinking about if they want to apply to an accelerator? Um, you know, are, are there any sort of red flags or what are what are the people in your experience running accelerators? I, I've heard this and mm. it sounds um, like it's probably true, but maybe it's overstated sometimes that the person is more important than the business or the idea that they're investing in. A yeah, person. that's so, right. Yeah. So go ahead. Um, yeah, I'll just dive in on that is uh, at, at the earliest stages of a company, the risk is is at the highest point because all sorts of things could fail. It could, the, the, the product might not work. Uh, there might be no market. The team could blow up. Uh, there are any number of problems that, that could prevent a company from doing well. And, uh, and so there, therefore the investors and anyone evaluating the opportunity, you know, what do you have to go on to know if this is going to work out? There are no financials at that stage. There's no, you know, maybe there's a little revenue, but is this something that can scale? It's very, it's, it's a very, uh, a lot of uncertainty at that point and, it, and it's irreducible. So, so what people focus on at this point, and these are investors, incubators, accelerators, and actually even first employees or even your co-founder, right? It's like, if you're asking someone to join the company at the, <laughs> at that point, that's an investment as well. Hmm. They're staking their career to join forces with you. And so what is the story that you tell? And the number one element in all of these at this early stage is who are you? You know, what, what makes you, you know, if you're a team, I mean, at the, at the company point. So if you're applying to Y Combinator or you're looking for investment is like, who is this team? Do they have the knowledge to build what they say they're working on? Do they have the, uh, do they have the cohesion to withstand the, the ups and downs and inevitable like cratering? and soaring that is involved with a startup? Uh, do they have the ability to make hires? Are they agreeable? Do they have social intelligence? Hmm. Um, do, they, do they have the ability to raise money? Can they tell stories? Can they persuade? I mean, so it's like, the, it's all focused on the team. And, uh, and you know, the, the thing with uh, accelerators is that this is all based on an application. So it's very hard to suss those things out and hmm. questions. Uh, that's best, you know, shown over time in reality. So with Y Combinator, what you'll see on their application is they'll have questions like, tell us about a hack you built to get around some system. Or tell us about, uh, you know, a hack that had a great magnitude, you know, tell us and, and had nothing to do with a business, right? So it's like, I think they're asking all these indirect questions because they want to kind of zero in on the character of the people involved. Mm -hmm. And that's true for the, the accelerators and it's true at the investment level as well. So, uh, and, and that's tied to the risk of the, uh, of it not working out. The only way, you know, it's going to work out the thing you have to zero in on is, is this team capable of pulling this off? And so that's the number one thing. So there are three things people look at when they're investing at the, at the earliest stage and, and, and team is the number one priority. Hmm. Uh, the second thing is, is the market that people are entering in. And, and then the third thing is, is the actual product idea in that market. 
And so why in, why in that order? Uh, so the team is most important for the reasons I outlined. The second thing, the market, it represents the opportunity that this investment might yield. And that's important when we think about the different kinds of investors. Uh, so if you're, if you're an angel investor, the source of your money is your hard-earned dollars, however you, you made your wealth. Uh, it could be you, you, these people could be high net worth individuals, former entrepreneurs, but whatever the case may be, it's their own money. And so if they're making an investment, uh, think about the alternative investment opportunities that they have as individuals. They could put, let's say, that $100,000 into the S&P, uh, a mutual fund, tracking fund. They could put it into bonds. They could put it into all sorts of asset classes that have a return. But instead, they're choosing to put it into the, this risky class because while it's high risk, they, there might be high reward and all sorts of other reasons. Uh, and, and so, you know, $100,000 from an angel, let's say uh, your company at the investment is worth a million dollars and they're putting in 100000 and that gives them, that means they own 10% of the company. And let's say that company grows to $10 million. That sounds like a, a a lot of money to you and me. Uh, and to the angel, that would be a great return. That's 10x. So their $100,000 is now worth 1 million. And uh, that's better than anything they're going to get in any alternative asset class. There's no way you get that return on the S&P 500. Uh, so, so that's great. However, now, I, the reason I outline that is because venture capitalists are very different. Because they get their money from a different place. They have their own investors who have pooled money and have uh, invested it in the fund to look for a return. And so now there's a different set of incentives at play and a different business model uh, such that the 10x return that the angel saw, because it was his own money and he gets all those returns, uh, you know, that's great for him. But for the venture capitalist, let's say he raises a big fund. He's got, he, he's managing $50 million uh, and he makes that $100,000 investment. It goes 10X, the company's 10 million, it's acquired. And the venture capitalist makes 1 million. That means he still has 49 million that he has to make up in his other investments hmm. and before he ever makes a profit for the fund. Hmm. Uh, so. By, by uh, that like rough model, whenever a venture capitalist is looking at a deal, this is why the market is so important because they're going to want to know that it's going to be bigger than, than a $10 million company because <clears throat> venture capital is very risky. It tends to be a portfolio-based approach, meaning uh, you make lots of investments in lots of different categories to try to spread your risk. And there's a power law return distribution such that it's so risky only the top one or two companies does extremely well and so, the rest so in either a, in a given investment um and they call it a vintage right when you have a yeah. a, a, a bunch of uh, let's say you've got a certain amount of money in a fund 50 million or whatever yeah and you're investing that in this portfolio <laughs> of companies typically it's going to be one or two of those companies that's going to generate almost all of the returns. So is that yeah, probably what you're talking about? Right. So what's the percentage yeah. in a typical VC firm of companies that are winners, I guess, or winners yeah, is significant? I, I haven't seen any public documents about this. I just have my own 
experience from uh, Peter working with Peter Thiel and uh, and then just word of mouth around. I mean, I've heard anywhere between like 40 percent of the portfolio will will go bankrupt or, or fold. Uh, another 40 percent will uh, break even and then uh, maybe 10 percent will do kind of OK. Okay, and then the last ten percent will either be a you know it has to be the home run hmm. that that just outperforms everything else by a wide margin. So that's a uh, huge from the investor standpoint. I think it's easy for an entrepreneur who's seeking funding to feel like the investors they have all the power. They're just sitting back with their monocle and their cigar, and they're just having a good old yeah. time. They can they can make people's <laughs> yeah, dreams right. come true. But the <laughs> amount of pressure. And how much work, like they've got to pick winners and not just pick, but they've got to actually pick them and also groom them and cultivate them and work with them. And mm. it's very, very, very hard to, to, to be successful as a venture capitalist. Yeah. So uh, I think 80% of venture capital firms break even or lose money wow. themselves. So it's only the top firms that are doing really well. So it's a very risky asset class. Uh, but I think a lot of investors like to participate because it can be exciting. You're learning about cutting edge technologies and there is always that chance that, uh, that you, you could just hit that, find the next Apple or Microsoft. So um, there's, there's a lot, you going know, people, I, ahead, I tell people, this kind of blows this, this does blow people's minds when I tell them sometimes, but it's, it's, I, I keep mentioning my former boss, but like Peter Thiel has to fundraise. I mean, people just think he's this billionaire and he's investing his own money. But if you look at his uh, venture capital vehicles, they have to fundraise from LPs just like everyone else. Yeah. And and so accordingly, they have a business model and a set of incentives that are very different from uh, even Peter in his younger days. So when Peter made the Facebook investment, he did that founders fund didn't exist at the time that was done through his uh, his personal office and it was an angel investment. So I was like, that's a very different uh, situation that he faced than he would now uh, being the, the founder and, and manager of Founders Fund. Well, everything successful in the world of business uh, requires sales. You can never escape selling. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, uh, yeah, actually. You can never fact, escape selling and the best sales is hidden. That, that's that's actually a great, ooh, we have to come back to that. Yeah, but well, Michael, yeah. before uh, before he came on this call, he he said, "Hey, I was, I'm, I'm just, I'll be there in a second. I'm just coming from a, a pitch meeting." I said, "Oh, is somebody pitching you yeah. for investment?" He said, "No, I'm pitching <laughs> other people. I'm raising money." <laughs> so, I want to yeah. ask you about there's a there's sort of a big oh oh there were a couple threads there, and I just want to close on the one which yeah. is like yeah, knowing who you're pitching to uh, is important because now based on those business models, I just like at the elaborated on at length is like a venture capitalist might pass on you because it's too early for that person to tell whether or not you're a big enough opportunity to make back their whole fund. Mm. So if you're talking to someone who, who runs a billion dollar venture capital fund, they're looking at you as a company. They're going to have to figure is like, okay, if we get a 10% stake in this company, is it going to be big enough to be worth a billion dollars? Think about what that means. That means they're looking to see if you're building a $10 billion company. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. That's crazy. There's a huge opportunity the cost angel... to their money. And, and yeah. And so, so, it's, so you could say, hey, I've got this business. Look at this model. In three years, with a $100,000 investment from you, we're going to be a $20 million company. And you know, you're going yep. to have 10% of it. That's $2 million. This is going to be amazing. And that's a yep. good, solid business model. But 
not necessarily juicy enough for a venture. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's like if, if I created a $20 million company, I would be pretty proud. Of that. <laughs> uh, that's quite an achievement, but I love that in Silicon Valley for the main, you know, Sand Hill road VCs, it's just not an opportunity that they're interested in because it's too small. So angels, there's a, there's a lot of growth in this area and there's also a lot of new ways to access angels. There's kind of uh, things like yep. angel list and these sort of crowdfunding <laughs> kind of things are coming up on the mm. scene. Um, and yep. There's a lot of there's a lot of sort of warnings you hear from people about angels. And now certainly venture capitalists um, might mm. warn people about angels because, you know, maybe they have their own reasons for that. But there's what you know, a lot of people say there's dumb angels and smart angels and dumb. Yeah. Meaning they basically bring money to the table and that's it. And that and maybe that's yep. OK. I, I, I've angels, actually heard a new term that I, I I've heard a new term on that that I prefer because it's a little nicer. It's it's that they're quiet money. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. that, that is much nicer. Yeah. It, Cause it's not necessarily bad. I mean, if you, yeah, it just means they don't have other services or advice to offer. Uh, which it, 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 dumb money sounds a little mean to me sometimes. No, so. no. And, and I think, and I think sometimes, <laughs> you know, there's a, if, if you say, um, well, we want money, you know, sort of smart money, somebody that knows the industry, they bring something to the table. You also have to be careful there because that means someone's going to be up in your business all the time. Um, and yeah, that's that true. might make you better, but it also might drive you nuts. Yeah. I mean, it might be helpful actually to uh, outline, you know, who who can be an investor. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you do uh, So like taking that a step back is uh, – so there's a, a lot of regulations here uh, that the SEC – I forget the origins. I think it goes back to the 1930s. But but the intent behind it was to prevent snake oil salesmen from raising money from hopeless grandmothers and, and just uh, defrauding them. Uh, what the SEC decided was that uh, if you were rich enough, then it meant you were probably smart enough to know how to invest your own money. And so they created these rules. They created a term called qualified investor or accredited investor. And an accredited investor has to satisfy two categories. One, that person has to, I, uh, it, actually it's an either or. They have to either have more than a million dollars in liquid assets, meaning assets that aren't homes, let's say, that's illiquid. Uh, or they have to have made, uh, I think it's 250,000 per year over the last three years and expect to make that in the, in the years ahead. Uh, and, and if you are so qualified, you, you count as accredited and you are allowed to invest in early stage private companies. If you don't satisfy that uh, requirement, then Uncle Sam, unfortunately, has said you're not smart enough to know how to invest your money and, and you're not allowed to make these investments. Now, that's so, potentially changing. Is that right? Yeah. And so that, I forget. It's called the Jobs Act was passed, uh, included some. Uh, legislation about changing this policy, but to me, I don't think, I don't know if the SEC has implemented it yet. Okay. And why that can be exciting is because it's tied to some of these alternative routes of raising money that you might might have been inching towards. Which is, uh, if 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 they allow non-accredited investors to, or or they accredit it, you know, everyone, uh, then suddenly uh, crowdfunding becomes an option or other sorts of ways of raising money from people who, who might be, you know, have, have some money they want to risk on, 
on this kind of venture, but uh, don't have access right now. So right now you could go uh, support a a crowdfunding campaign for like, say, a nonprofit or something where you get no mm. stake in the company. Maybe you get a product in return from Indiegogo Kickstarter, but this would actually right. allow you to, you know, <laughs> put in a thousand dollars and get some small share in, in the company itself. Um, yeah. If that ever changes, if that law ever. Yeah. I, I, it'd be good. I'd, it'd be good to check in on where that stands. I know it's supposed to happen at some point, but it remains to be seen how it's going to work out. Uh, Angel List is a, uh, it, they do have a crowdfunding option uh, where people can uh, uh, make investments alongside uh, syndicate leads. So Tim Ferriss, I think, is one of their big ones, the, the famous author and podcaster. He's also got a, a strong network of people and, he, and he's been making some good investments. And I think on AngelList, he lets you opt in to, to invest alongside him. But even with AngelList product, uh, you still have to be an accredited investor at this point to participate. Are there a lot of startups getting funding like just just from AngelList? Like they go to AngelList mm. and they don't know anyone ahead of time and they get money there? Or is it usually no. they've already got it, some yeah. money? Okay. That's it. It tends to be the case that they're actually filling out the rest of the round that they're raising. So they've so raised maybe, half or a third of what yeah. they Gotcha. And then, uh, and then even then, uh, it, to, tie, to return to that concept of smart and dumb money, uh, the crowdfunding money is considered quiet dumb money. So a lot of entrepreneurs aren't really excited about uh, raising from that source just now. I mean, if you don't have an option, great. Uh, and, and you can pull it off, but a lot of companies see uh, who their their uh, investors are as an authentication process to the rest of the world in Silicon Valley that they're legit. Hmm. And so, if you're accepting money from uh, lots of quiet money, uh, it doesn't really satisfy that authentication, and and so people aren't as eager to try it. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting. I. I'd love to see some microeconomic analysis of this uh, authentication trust process where, uh, you know, there is this competition from crowdfunding and other sources. But to this day, it ties into the early nature of these startups where there are no financials. How do we know this is good? How do we know they're not just shysters? How do we know they're not just dreamers? And right now, one of the signals that other that people rely on is who the investors are. And that acts as a signal of quality. It authenticates that it's real. And that helps in future rounds of fundraising. It helps with your hires if you're making, you know, hiring employees. It's like, oh, they have money from uh, Reed Hoffman. This has to be legit. So hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to work for them. So it's interesting. I, it's like, I don't know what that concept would be it's, in it's that, it's that but... uh signaling value yeah it's, it's like when michael jordan is uh advertising your batteries people assume well they were they were willing to put in enough money to pay him they must be not a fly-by-night yeah you know <laughs> um yeah right so think about uh, okay yeah think about asymmetric information and a market for lemons uh in that situation uh Asymmetric means that one side actually has more information than the other side. I think in startups, no one has information. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, or the, or it's just so scarce, and so they're looking for sources uh, in in any way they can. And and who your investors are is is still one of those sources. So when there's um, 
one thing that we sort of skipped over, and I want to just briefly ask you on, <laughs> yeah. um, if you've got this idea in the early stage, mm. what, why, why go the investor route where you're looking to trade a percentage of ownership in the company for money mm. versus, uh, the debt route where you go to like, let's say a bank <clears throat> and you borrow money from them, um, you know, and they don't take any ownership of the company, but you have to pay it back. What's, what's the main thing that differentiates yeah. those two choices? You know, that's a great question. I, I wish I had a, a very full answer to, I mean, off the cuff, I mean, I think there are all sorts of liability issues with, with loans, uh, that, that can overhang on a company. Uh, I think you're going to face a, a different kind of uncertainty, just paying the money back and, and the interest involved. So with with an investment, if you go bankrupt, you don't owe anything. Yep. Uh, I guess the company could declare bankruptcy, and that would be a way to get out of the loan. Uh, but hmm, I mean that's a that, that's a great question. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a um on the in, on the equity investment side, you are yeah. cutting mm-hmm. into your potential upside if it succeeds. But if you don't succeed, yeah. you're not on the hook. On the on the debt investment side, um, you you are. Uh, you know, if you succeed, you have 100% of the, of the company. So you don't yeah. lose anything on the upside, but on the downside, I, th- I think Mark Cuban says, uh, you're an idiot. If you go into debt to start a company, you, you should never use yeah. your own money, use other people's money. If you can, <laughs> if you can. Yeah. I mean, one of the great inventions of, uh, all time is the limited liability corporation. <laughs> uh, so if you're using other people's money and you're not personally liable for, if your idea doesn't work out, uh, that sets the stage for some great risk taking. So when you at fifteen seventeen fund, w- mm-hmm. would you consider yourself? You're at the venture capital stage, like early. Yeah, so we, that's right. We're a venture capital fund, so we have a business model similar to the one I described before, where we are, we're going to make a portfolio uh, of investments, and uh, we need to bring returns to our investors. So it does it does force us to look at at the size of an opportunity a little bit differently from. Uh, angels where we're very similar to angels though is that we want to get in uh, we want to make investments in companies and in people at the earliest stages so we make investments in young people at the start of their careers and we're doing it uh, often at you know probably this point where they have a little bit of traction that's the word for revenue or users Uh, they certainly have a team and, and so on but yeah so just to, to get some jargon out there that tracks the life cycle of, of a company, um, the, the stages we're talking about, I mean, it's changing a little bit all the time, but in general, it's like, okay, friends and family is that, that initial stage where maybe it's a few thousand dollars, all that maybe tens of thousands of dollars and you're getting started. Then there's something called pre-seed, which would be anything, I suppose, less than, uh, 250,000 or maybe 300,000. And then a seed round describes raising money, let's say 300,000 to I've seen now, uh, $2 million. Hmm. Uh, and then it, the next round of financing, uh, it would be called the series a, and then it continues on down the alphabet, depending how much people raise. And, uh, and when you're, when you're looking at companies to invest in, mm-hmm. um, 
you want them, you said you want them to have some kind of traction. So you want them to have a product, um, yeah. or at least a minimum viable product, some prototype version yeah. at the very least, uh, have a team <laughs> in place. And so they're, they're, they already exist. They've got some, a little bit of traction at least. And then you're looking to invest roughly what amount and for what percentages of companies are, or is it, is there even a general rule? Yeah. So there's just, there, there are baseline rates that you're, you, you compare yourself to, uh, it's such a dark art because it's so hard to know. Uh, you can't value a company if it has no financials, but nevertheless, it's, it's uh, some people I've heard this phrase is that the, the seed stage is about the sizzle. The series A is about the stake and what the sizzle is, is the story behind the company, the team. Uh, but nevertheless, it's still hard to uh, set a value on, on that company. And so uh you know, what, what Silicon Valley has done is develop a set of practices to lower transaction costs and try to uh, solve some of these problems. It used to be that in the early stage, people sold uh, equity in the company, so stock. Uh, but by selling stock, you got to put a price on it. And, and it's very hard to do that at such an early stage. So what developed in Silicon Valley are a set of instruments and tools that uh, let people postpone these these decisions uh, on investment, they they get to make investments, but they don't have to do solve hard problems like set a price until the company is a little bit more mature. And so, oh. what what I'm referring to here is called a convertible note. Hmm. Uh, y Combinator developed something called a safe. That's an acronym that stands for a simple agreement for future equity. Hmm. Uh, and so, what what these instruments do is, uh, let's just take the convertible note. Uh, if you're an investor or a company, you can't you can't set a value on it. Uh, so you want to postpone that. Uh, so what the convertible note does is it is in effect a loan to the company, uh, but it it's convertible because it converts into equity at the next round of financing uh, uh, when, when there's more information on the company and, and you feel more comfortable about setting an actual valuation on it. So often uh, at the seed stage or earlier, yeah, people are investing on convertible notes and and the investor though doesn't want to be totally left uh, unprotected in terms of uh, valuation. So what they do is these notes have some components on them to protect investors or set limits. Uh, they're they're referred to as valuation caps or caps for short. So uh, what that does is it sets a maximum value uh, that the investor will have to pay per share in the next round of financing. So what you often hear is a company will raise a million dollars on a convertible note with a $7 million cap. Hmm. And what that means is that the next round of financing, the most that the company will, or th that those convertible note investors will have to pay is as if the company was worth 7 million. And, th and th th that'll be really good for them. Let's say that at the next round of financing, the company's worth 15 million. They're paying the price at 7 million. So they've made, they've made a lot of, they've, they more than two X their investment. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, th there's almost, there's few things more <laughs> exciting and fascinating to me than the creative inventive ways that people can structure all these different financial arrangements. Yeah. Uh, I'm, always, I'm always, I'm always blown away. Yeah. Uh, it can get ingenuity. complicated. Uh, the other, yeah, the other thing that you'll hear about is a discount, uh, which, which also refers to the price per share that an investor will pay in the next round. So sometimes it'll be something on the order of 20%. And that means that, uh, let's say I have that discount and you don't, 
uh, I'm paying 80 cents per share and you're paying a dollar. So, um, with your fund, 1517 fund. So it's, it's more than, it's more than just, okay, we want good founders with a good, you know, uh, good market opportunity and a (laughs) good idea, et cetera. Mm. You actually, it's much tighter than that. You, you, and most VC firms, from my understanding, you have what's called a thesis, which is sort of, it's like your mission statement and it kind of restricts what types of things you'll invest in based on what you think is your sort of area of expertise. Talk a little bit about the thesis. Yeah, this, actually, this is a good way to find investors as well, uh, going to, to return to the earlier question. Uh, and I mentioned going to conferences. Like One of the things investors care a lot about is conviction. And one of the things they love to see is just conviction about anything. And so if, if, if you meet investors at a conference about, let's say, the future of artificial intelligence, and you have a deep conviction in that topic, and they have a deep conviction in that topic, uh, it may be the case that then they're interested in talking to you about your business idea. That may be related, but not necessarily, right? Uh, so uh, one aspect of that is funds typically have uh, a conviction on how they think the future is going to play out. And so they want to focus their investments uh, expressing that view. And if it, it, in, the num- you know, in the list of things you should do, before you talk to investors is you should try to figure out what their thesis is that they focus on. And with 1517, since we grew out of the, out of the Teal Fellowship and we have a, a history of working with younger entrepreneurs, what we want to focus on is not necessarily what, but who. Hmm. What would be focusing on a, a, an industry or a trend? We, we are following things, but what we're more interested in is who. And uh, that means... You're probably uh, high school or college aged. You're probably a little subversive or outside the swim and <laughs> in your career so far or what you want to do. You know, maybe you dropped out. Maybe you stopped out. Maybe you graduated, but, you, you know, you didn't find your education that useful and you're doing something differently. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we, we, we focus on people. We're, uh, we're founder oriented and, specific, and and tied to that that age piece as well. One thing that I've found and tell me if this is, if this rings true for you and your experience, um, is that if you, if you develop a relationship with someone who is an event, uh, an investor or they work at a VC firm, even if your idea is outside of what they invest in, maybe they only invest in SaaS, uh, you know, mm. software as a service and you're doing something different. Even then, oftentimes sending them maybe your deck, um, your, your pitch and saying, Hey, mm. could you take a look at this? Do you know anyone? Sometimes they yeah. value that because of this thing called deal flow. You guys all yep. need a lot of deals coming in. You need to be <laughs> looking at tons of deals to make investments. Yep. So even if you can't, if you can do a favor to a friend and say, hey, take a look at this. It might be a good deal for you to look at. Now yeah, built true. up a little uh, rapport with them and they may be willing to send deals that, that don't fit them your way as well. Yeah, that's that's a good thing to keep in mind. And and the better relationship you have with that person, the, the easier that kind of handoff is. Uh, so, I mean, sometimes if, if if you don't know the person at the fund and they're a enterprise hardware fund and you're a consumer software fund uh, or a startup, uh, it, it could be so far afield that, you know, just be careful, but or not careful. I mean, you know, you just yeah, don't you just aren't going to get anything. Yeah. Yeah. But but you're right. I mean, it's it, it's so true that people are just looking for great deal flow and they and they want to help their friends out. Uh, certainly on Sand Hill Road, everyone talks to each other. I know a lot of investors and 
uh, I've passed deals on to them that uh, weren't quite good fits for our fund just because of what we focus on. Um, they've sent people my way. It happens all the time. And, and then in, in the due diligence phase as well, funds talk to each other all the time as well. Hey, you're looking at that. What do you think? How do you know them? And so on. So what? how do you get deal flow? Because I think, I think in a lot of people's minds, they think, oh, it must be easy. You've got all yeah. this money. Everybody's knocking down your door to pitch you. Uh, and while a lot of people probably are, a lot of bad ideas might be trying to knock down your door. But there's <laughs> there's a lot of good ideas out there. It's almost like a, if you have a professional sports team, you need to have a yeah. whole deep network of scouts and talent yeah. recruitment that starts all the way down in high school and through college. Right. So how do you do that as a, as a fund? How do you get that deal flow and keep a steady flow of, of good, um, you know, good opportunities coming your way? Yeah, so our experience with the the Teal Fellowship helped us out quite a bit in laying down the 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 funnel for young entrepreneurial talent. The fellowship is still in effect, and that's a uh, you know that's an independent. I'm now independent from it, uh, but it is still an interesting uh, talent magnet uh, that that we will continue to uh, work with. Um, and then, and then just the ecosystem that we created around the fellowship and Peter's foundation as well with our summits and other activities, uh, we, we, in our recruiting for the fellowship, we spent a lot of time on college campuses and now we continue that to this day because we really want to help people out even before we make an investment. We want to get to know them, uh, even if they're at the idea stage and we try to throw resources their way. We, one thing that we've, uh, sort of innovated on, I guess, I suppose, because not a lot of funds do this, if any, uh, we give out small grants. We give out 1K grants. Uh, we'll be on campus. I'll be at office hours. I meet a team or a person who has an idea. But so, so you can need, almost play that you know, friends and family role in some, some yeah, sense. Yeah, that's what we're going for. And, and, and then we'll try to throw resources their way as well. We could introduce them to experts in the field. Uh, it could just be back office stuff or uh, even Amazon Web Services credits along those lines can be very helpful. But but yeah, it's like I'm, we're, we're constantly cultivating these relationships across America. We think our competitive advantage is that uh, we're hustlers. I sometimes I refer to my co-founder and myself as Lewis and Clark because we're <laughs> out on the road so often, just uh, constantly meeting new people, exploring. Uh, and, and that's what we have to do to find interesting ideas because we can't sit back like Y Combinator and receive 10,000 applications. Uh, we got to go out there and meet these people and help them out. What What is the typical, if there is a typical percentage <laughs> in, a, in, say, a VC firm, how many pitches do they hear versus those that they mm. invest in? I don't know. I, I don't know a good number on that. That's good. I mean, it's got to be an extreme I, minority, I would assume. Yeah, I, I, I think it it must be, I mean, you could think of it as a funnel where I know most funds won't even listen to the email from nowhere. Mm. Uh, so the conversion rate on that is pretty, they must get thousands and then reply to none. Uh, I think maybe an interesting example, if you had the number of like warm intros that a fund receives and then the number, and then they actually like the partners sit down and they hear the pitch, like how many of those do they invest in? Uh, I don't know. I, I, if I had to guess, I, I would probably say one in five or one in 10 even. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be, it's, it's, it's going to be hard. 
but fortunately, there's a lot of capital out there. So <laughs> I think, uh, you know, even if you don't get that fund, you might get the next one or another investor. I mean, right now, I mean, one of the exciting things about being an entrepreneur right now is that there is so much capital looking for returns. They're desperate for it. There's no way. And like you look at the global economy, uh, everything is in turmoil. It's hard to get return. You, you, you actually have to you're losing money uh, by holding bonds right now. In, in, in certain countries, there's a negative interest rate. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there's capital looking for returns. And I think one of the only exciting games in town in the whole world is American startup technology companies. Uh, so even though that may be referred to a lot of dumb money or quiet money, or maybe it's not a top tier VC, it is, I think, never before in history has it been this easy to raise money for an idea. So I'm going to, I'm going to end us here with two quick questions for you. Yeah. One is what's the hardest part about being an investor? Mm. And then two, what's something that you wish entrepreneurs knew, um, before they went and sought investment? So in other words, you know, when they come mm. in and you're hearing pitches and things like that, <laughs> is there yep. something, a common mistake that you think people should, should be prepared for? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, I'll start with the I'll start with the second question sure. first, actually. Um, just there's a standard format for uh, developing a pitch deck that everyone should know. And uh, actually, I don't know if you have like links that you can put up. I can yeah. send you a link to I, I've written up some notes on pitch decks and and have some resources I'm happy to share. Oh, we'll absolutely uh, put those in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll connect that. And and, and so what? I wish more people spent time on is actually polishing their deck and, and practicing their pitch in all its different forms, whether the elevator pitch or the uh, conference room pitch and, and really just having it down. It's, and I work with young people. So it's kind of interesting is like, because I worked with young people, I just assumed that they were inexperienced and that's why they were a little awkward and, and, in pitching their idea. But then I started uh, sitting on panels for events where there were older people pitching and, and I'm just amazed at how bad everyone is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what do I mean by that? I mean, like in some instances, they didn't even explain what problem they were solving. It was like they skipped over the whole product idea. It's like, whoa. So uh, yeah, there's a, and what I mean by formats to the deck is like, there's a typical order. There are key points that you have to hit uh, and explain. Um, and, and so everyone should have that in the background, no matter what. Uh, and, and it's always helpful when it's like, you just, you just know someone has thought through the problems hmm. uh, and, it, and it's a clear indication about how, how far along they are on their idea. Uh Remind me again what the first question yeah, what, was. Yeah, what's the hardest part about being an investor? <clears throat> the hardest part about being an investor was, you touched on it, was, was the deal flow, making sure that you have a constant stream of great ideas because uh, you're building a portfolio. You want, you, you want all of it to, to have the potential to be good. I think the key thing that most investors regret is actually passing on on something that became big. Yeah, I've heard that many and, times. Yeah. Investing in something that, that fails isn't nearly that's as gonna, painful yeah, as that's, that's not investing. Happen, yeah. Right. Uh, so with my own experience, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not concerned about actually sitting down in a pitch meeting and passing. I mean, that, that, that could happen. 
I can't wait for I in in the emails, uh, Danielle, my co-founder, and I when when we do pass on an opportunity, uh, we always we've added a sentence a few times. We're like, look, we know this is you could rub this in our faces one day and we hope we, you do because <laughs> it's, like, it's just so hard. Uh, but my biggest fear of all is actually I don't even get the pitch meeting hmm. is that the person is just so far outside my scope and never thought to talk to me that uh, I, I don't even get a look at all. Hmm. So that, that that's the hardest thing is like, am I even seeing? It's like it would be heartbreaking if I saw if I heard the pitch for the next Facebook or Uber and passed, but I think it would suck if, if I knew I could have met this person and I, and I didn't even get the, I didn't do it. Huh? Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Michael Gibson. Again, he's a general partner with 1517 fund, 1517 Mm -hmm. fund.com. Um, this has been really, really awesome, really informative. Cool. I uh, hope it's helpful for your listeners. I really enjoyed talking to you. Absolutely. We'll talk with you again soon. All right, Isaac. Be well. See ya.